the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock Podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things relating to livestock. It's been funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and also the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks to Scottish Government for their support. So I'm joined this afternoon by my friend and colleague, uh, George Bakey, who's the head of SRUC Farms. Uh, So how are things with you today, George? Uh, very good. We're enjoying the fine weather, which uh, is is meant that we've got plenty of grass and for the silage that's lying on the deck or about to go on the deck. Uh, we're looking forward to quite a decent harvest of grass for a, for a change. Yeah, it's good. It's gone from, you know, certainly in the spring we had plenty to talk about as far as weather went, but now things have uh, fairly healed up and, and things are actually quite a pleasant pleasant job to be in at the moment, isn't it? It's yeah, good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I suppose we're an embarrassment of riches with grass at the moment. Like, when I continue, I, I don't suppose, but right now we're literally making hay whilst the sun shines. I mean, uh, right, we've just finished the second cut at Barony uh, on the dairy there, and we're knocking down the third cut for lifting at Crichton. And we'll be taking the second cup beef farm uh, up at Easter Howgate, uh, probably knocking it down over this weekend to lift it on Monday or Tuesday next week. So, yeah, we're, we're well through the grass harvest and uh, hopefully the weather holds to get all this done. And are you getting our, our pits pretty full? Are you pretty happy where we're at? Uh, the first cuts were better than I expected. I, I was maybe a wee bit pessimistic at what I was thinking. Uh, but the second cuts, in terms of volume, are fantastic to be quite honest uh, and you can uh, right now some of the guys are shifting balers about in the business to try and make sure we can bail off some of the excess because we're not expecting some of the second cuts to go into the pits we've got dedicated for them all it's, it's amazing and, and your pessimism at the start of the year was was shared by most people you know it was, it was hard to believe that things could go from from that bad to being yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, boom, it was fine. It, uh, well, like the beef cows at Easter Howgate, um, they're on a, an AI program. And I was seriously concerned about the energy going into the cows at that point. And we had plans in place to actually give them some cobs and stuff during the bulling period. But I think it was one weekend that the grass almost must have grown four or six inches. And it was ridiculous to even contemplate feeding them. I mean, we are literally wading in grass like. So. Hopefully that that is not the, the, the any particular problem for us this year. Yeah. So we'll come back to those cows in a wee minute and they'll be the, mm-hmm. the focus of this kind of beef podcast. But I think it's interesting for, for people to know. So so your role's pretty complex. It's quite a big business. Can you describe roughly what you know, and maybe in some numbers, what, what are you managing? What what is your role? Right. SRUC Farms is an is one big business. Um so there's farms in the southwest at the dairies, which is King Crichton Acre Head, it's got Barony, we obviously have Kirkton, we've Easter Howgate, we've Oatridge, and we've got Crabston up in Aberdeenshire. The gross is about four thousand hectares, just over four thousand hectares, ten thousand acres and old money. And on that you can we run substantial beef cows, beef cow herds, dairy cow herds, sheep flocks. We also have a fair range of crops. So, I mean, in terms of numbers, the dairy cows, we've got uh, 700 dairy cows producing just shy of six and a half million litres of milk. There's about 600 beef cows finishing everything. There's three and a half thousand yows. 
Um, and the there's about there should be about 150 pigs going far out to finish operation. Uh, and again, we're finishing as much of the livestock as we can. Out all these things being used for trials and feeding trials and stuff as we go. But the bit that keeps getting forgotten is we have a substantial arable operation as well. I mean, we've got something in the region, 105 hectares of spring barley. There's 60 odd hectares of winter barley, 60 odd hectares of winter wheat, 40 hectares of maize, um, as well as getting the silage and all the rest of it. And we're aiming to produce, well, we use, in the dairies, even in the summertime, we're using about 25 tonne of silage a day. And in the wintertime, that probably rises to near 70 tonne a day. So you can imagine that when you multiply that up and then you pull on a beef cattle later on, we need something in the region of 15 to 20,000 tonnes of silage a year, uh, which is done in a various systems. Um, at Aberdeen, it's probably the simplest one. It's an the whole farm's organic, so it's a two-cut organic system up there. Oatridge is a two-cut, fairly conventional system. Howgate is three cuts. Um, using a lot of kind of muck and slurry to support that. And then in the dairies, there's a three, four cut system at Barony, and there's probably five or six cuts uh, at Crichton. It just by very nature of the, the grass seems to grow down there continually, which is fantastic. So that's roughly the scale of the, the actual land holding. In terms of people, we've got somewhere in the region of 35 full-time equivalents. We're running something like 28 tractors and 10 teleporters and about 10 sheepdogs. So, um, it's it's in that order. It's a, a, not a small handling anyway. It's it's obviously a it's a massive business, and I find it very interesting anyway. You know, we've got a a good footprint across the country, so we you know we're we're well represented in in most areas in the country, and and certainly most farming systems as well. So it's it's certainly good for my job as a consultant to see what those what our own farms are doing and what we can. You know what's relevant there that we can we can pull out and give right. to farmers the, as well. The, so. the, the bit I don't have is the poultry. We do have a big poultry unit as well, Alamur, but it is almost entirely dedicated to experimental stuff. Um, but I mean, again, there is a big poultry operation there as well, um, which is just doesn't fall within the farm's portfolio as far as I'm concerned at the moment. Yeah, and and your farming role. So you're you've obviously got a complexity that most farmers don't have that you've got research trials a lot of researchers and a lot of education on the go as well is that uh is it a blessing and a curse in equal measure i suppose the difference i have for a normal farm is that my client primarily is academic faculty which is the, the, the grand word for how you support researchers and, and how you support education they're the two principal drivers to what we do and why we have such a diversified portfolio of stuff. I mean, something like, if you take the sheep, for example, I think this year there will only be three months of the year we don't have yows lambing. And I mean, literally, we'll have yows lambing from September until June um, in various programs, various numbers. Again, in some cases, it's quite small numbers, but again, it's on a rolling kind of basis. Um, we should point out that's planned that's not just bad management i don't know that is planned it's, it's <laughs> not uh, i mean in a previous existence asking a farmer how long he started when he started calving and he said well he started calving when the last at the end of the last war um because he didn't actually ever pull the bullet no no these are again planned uh, events as it were um all the way through the through the calendar so 
I so I mean they're my two principal clients. Um, what I then have to do is try and put some kind of commercial reality around that and uh, and have some sort of predictability in terms of what the performance of the unit is, um, and that then delivers, as you can imagine, it delivers experience for the kids in terms of getting access to various things to do, um, data for them to analyze and use for project support and doing their honors dissertations and, and other things, as well as some practical stuff like that someone will do bits of fencing and diking for us, as well as maybe do bits of plowing, spreading muck, that kind of things. But then the more complex scientific stuff, I mean, we supply the animals that are, are specifically bred for specific trials. So um, the beef cow herd, which I think we're going to come on to at Howgate, uh, is a limousine Angus crisscross bred program, has been for very, very many years. So that the, the microbiome of these livestock is understood quite well. It's quite well studied and quite well resourced so that therefore when they start bidding, they're bidding from a known standpoint. Uh, and that sounds all grand, but what that basically means is that the, the, the gut flora within these cows is of a known, within known parameters, which you didn't get if you were to buy in cattle from, can go through the market and buy 100 cattle or whatever, they would be all completely different because it's, it's related to how they're, they're reared, as it were. Yeah, and all that microbiome stuff obviously ties right into the climate stuff, which is becoming more and more relevant to industry and a bigger part of what we are doing. You know, on a oh, it's, it's a huge it's a huge part of what we're trying to do and i mean it's i mean the researchers are driven by government policy obviously that's where government policy is going quite rightly and therefore the, the programs of work that they can bid in for need uh, us to support them in, in doing that and i mean essentially our role in the farm is just to make sure that they're starting from a known standpoint um so that therefore the things that they're looking for have got a scope and a, of a and of a quant they speak about a thing called power in science, which is to do with the, the size of a group being used in a trial. And basically, the smaller a thing you're looking for, the bigger a group you need to actually verify the number. Um, and obviously, when they're looking at um, sort of things like gas and stuff, I mean, the actual cohort size, the group sizes of these things needs to be quite decent. And you're looking at 40, 50 stots or, or, or bullets in a group that, that give you anything remotely sensible in terms of scientific outcome. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned there Easter Howgate, and I think that's where we need to we need to focus into Easter Howgate um, today. And yeah. I think it's quite you know it's a really interesting place. There's a lot on the go, but probably at the at the kind of basic level, what where is Easter Howgate? What and and what are you running running on that farm? Easter Howgate itself um, is in the, is eight hundred and ten hectares. Um, so again, thicken the two and a half thousand acre, give or take. It includes a couple of hills, three hills actually, as well as a lot of in-buy stuff, um, some of which we own, some of which we rent. We run, again, a reasonably substantial yow flock on there. There's about a thousand yows, mixture of low ground and upland yows. And, and the, the focus for a lot of people is the cows. Uh, and we run so 340 odd spring calving cows and about 100 autumn calving cows, um, all of the progeny of which are finished on the unit and used to support trials or at least have a finishing enterprise uh, using the buildings and things out here. Yeah, and there's a lot of obviously high-end, like um, internationally important research coming out there, particularly with green cow facility and and you know methane chambers and things. There's a lot of really exciting stuff coming out of there just now. But but your role, what you have is a, no, no, you're fine, Robert. What you have there is you have a big cow shed which 
immediately adjacent to, which is a, is a facility for doing, for actually collecting the gas and things from the cows to actually analyse. So we feed them something different. We can test the, we can affect of feeding a low, a big volume of feed or a low volume of feed or specific quantity feeds being put in to test the various hypotheses and theses in terms of how you change the the gas generation um, potential of these things. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of people very you know keen to hear results and there's there are results coming out of these chambers but the issue is very complex there's no silver bullet here and there's also you know there's no silver bullet to the whole climate change issue and it's certainly not it's not all related to the beef cow that's for sure but certainly we are working pretty hard to try and get the um get the facts out there and 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 show the the place of the beef cow in the in the methane cycle and and maybe show that she's not all that all that bad a contrary to what some would let you believe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the cow herself obviously belches quite a lot of gas and things, but then she, you have to think about what she's eating. And again, especially in a Scottish scenario, whereas the majority of her diet is actually grass or grass-based products, and therefore there's a sequestration from the grass itself. Um, and what we, we need to have a think about is, you know, it boils down to practical stuff like how quickly do the cattle grow, how long are they on, on the planet for, again, how long are they on the planet for, and how much gas do they produce in that period of time per kilo of meat produced for, again, to, to hit the supermarket shelf, basically. As you see, we can, it's, it's hugely complex, but there's some simple on-farm messages that can make a big difference. Um, and probably with that in mind, I think if we focus down on to if we we can talk about the research and all the exciting stuff that's happening. Um, we could talk all day or more, but if we focus down onto that beef herd and and what you're actually, uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve with that beef herd, um, you had mentioned it. Was, it so it's a a triple synchro program that's run. In fact, do you want to describe that the the breeding program that you operate at Easter Howgate? Okay. Yeah. Um, obviously. Um... It's very important for us to know the parentage of cows and livestock to, to support the researchers here. Um, so we, we can, we've got sort of 14 generation pedigrees and stuff. For, well, they're cross cattle, but we can track them back a long, long time, which is, you can, a lot of farms can do that, but for us, it's a reasonably sophisticated process to be able to do that. Um, the two main breeds that we're using, there's three breeds we use. Um, the two, the, there's a, the Robert Angus's and Limousines, which are in a crisscross program, and there's a purebred Ling herd. Um, the Lings are entirely spring calving. Uh, they're thickened of a hundred of them. And then there is roughly equal numbers of Angus cross Limousine and Limousine cross Angus cows. The aim had been that we have a lot of cows calving in the springtime. Um, they're on a, can we, we aim for a 10-week calving, pro, uh, plan, uh, calving period, um, starting middle of March, uh, so that um, you can, we're, we're all done and dusted by the time the grass comes, hopefully, and we hit this time of year when we're in the process of AI at the moment. Historically, we used a triple AI program, but I think it came under a bit of pressure in terms of the way the cattle were being managed, um, or it was my view at least, and I've introduced bulls into the system. So what I've done is we now operate a double AI program with the bulls going in for the, again, after the second AI, and that any the younger the the first calf heifers are naturally served as as a proportion of the slightly older cows that are maybe falling behind, maybe the later cows, that kind of things, to try and ensure that conception rates stay 
at acceptable levels. Um, what we have been doing as well is that we've introduced that any heifers coming into the herd are pelvic scored and made, and can, it's not just that the usual you can make sure they're heavy enough and old enough to be sexually mature, but they actually are fit to breed. So can, we are kicking out anything, can free martins or anything that's not quite right at the start. So we don't waste too much time wasting can, on, on drugs and AI and stuff of these kind of beasts to then give us problems later on. When we first started doing that, we were probably kicking out about one in 10, whereas this year we're down to, I don't know, 5%, something, something just under 5% this year. We're getting kicked out for various reasons. Um, all the heifers are double AI'd, if they don't, as in two programs, if they don't, if they don't hold to that, they're withdrawing, and that's the end of their potential career with us. Uh, so the heifers are all AI'd, and that's lings as well as the, the, the red and black cows. The, anything from a second calver onwards uh, is in a, a double AI program with a bull coming in the third, the third service opportunity, as it were. Um, and any specific cow groups thereafter are also bulled um, kind of naturally, as it were. Like so, roughly in this in this current year, uh, just under six, it'll be sixty percent are an AI program, and forty percent will be being bulled the natural. Uh, at least first, the first two chances will be natural. It will be natural. Yeah, and so that program that so you're talking about a, a double AI program. Can you describe that? So there's obviously we're cedar, cedars and synchronising everything for the first AI. Yeah. What happens thereafter? Obviously, the cedars get pulled. The cows are then AI'd for the first opportunity on a on a predetermined protocol, um, which is fine. So they all get they all get a crack. The cows in the program all get a crack at that, and then for the second AI on a set date. Thereafter, the cedars go back in again, and regard you can because at that point you don't know whether they're in calf or not, and the cedars are then pulled and the cows are tail painted, and anything that has got a, a kind of marked kind of tail paint disturbed will get eyed a second time. Cows that are not showing, and it might be the odd cow that still shows that she's bullying at that point, which would get eyed, but the kind of the, the intention would be that hopefully the greater majority are actually in calf. By that stage for the first AI, um, it's hard to say what that looks like at this moment because literally the the second AI happened on Tuesday of this week. What'll happen is the bulls will go out with everything on Monday or Tuesday of next week, probably after the silage. Given that the boys are at silage this weekend, um, and the everything both naturally and uh, AI will be scanned on the twenty eighth of this month. Uh, to give us an indication of sort of fertility to date, where the bulls still having a couple of weeks thereafter to get the ten week period that they're out for. Yeah, and to me, I think you get the best of both worlds here. You get the high end genetics that the AI brings and the, and the control that the AI brings, but also your, you know, Stevie Rolf, who does the does the work at Easter Hoggy. It's a very enthusiastic, very driven AI man, but he's only there for a, a few hours on on a few days. So when you put the the bull in, he's effectively he's a um, a very enthusiastic AI man that just doesn't go away. So, uh, you know, the, the chance of stopping them in the final cycle are, um, you know, it's a, a nice sweep up, really, isn't it? It's a fine sweep up. It means that, uh, but also, but we are withdrawing the bulls. So, I mean, we're not looking at a calving period. Again, 10 weeks is our limit, like uh, yeah. either for this natural or AI. It doesn't extend beyond that. And I suppose what we've been able to do is focus on the younger cows, as in the first calf heifer, because to me, 
it's really, really important that you've got a beast that's going into the program who's fit to be a cow, uh, and just, just, just happen to be female at the right time, and that after she's had her first calf, we'll give her a good kind of, for, for a lot of these younger kind of still quite juvenile, these cows, uh, or, or heifers, the calf heifers at that point, to actually give them a wee bit of an extra kind of a bit of help by using the bull for the second kind to get them in calf for the second time seems to be helping. They're getting a chance that maybe the AI wasn't giving them uh, if, if anything is not quite right or the nutrition is not quite right or they're getting a wee bit bullied or they're maybe just struggling with milk or whatever. Again, as in producing milk, rearing the calf and getting herself uh, sexually uh, reproductive again. Like. Yeah. It's it's really interesting this year. We've touched on it before, but the we were all panicking at the start of June that, you know, certainly conventional herds, bulls were going out and... There was very little grass. There was nothing, you know, it, it wasn't looking great. And and that miracle of grass has turned, you know, t- things have turned really, turned in their head. And what great conditions at the moment for cows cycling and cows bulling and, and, and bulls working. Um, yeah. You know, I think we probably do, off the back of a fairly good calving in most herds, we've probably got prospects of reasonably good fertility for this year as well it's, it's well well fingers crossed i mean it's it's it, the proof of the pudding's always in the scanning or, or at least when the bulls come out and you get a scanning as they're housed later on but you, you can we ask the big focus is getting enough cows and calf because not only do we need it to make the numbers work but you can in terms of groupings and stuff for us to support education well there's much education because they're less concerned about the actual breed a calf but when we're trying to supply calves into a, a research program it is really important that we know the parentage and there's enough decent quantities of calves to give us the groupings that we need like so you can for us calves are even more important that we'll actually get enough of them and particularly when you, when it comes to selections down the line as well you can you can start selecting based on other traits rather than just in calf or not in calf if it's you know temperament Feet and legs, oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we cannot cope with wild cows. I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of students around the farm. I mean, yes, I'm concerned with my workers, but I mean, I've got this cohort of clients who are students. Then you can, the last thing we need is cows that are uh, somewhat aggressive, both either at calving time, which isn't so much a problem with students, but later on, can we cannot have cows that are can reactive in, in that sort of manner? And we still need to have a decent herd of cows to produce. At the end of the day, I'm still trying to kill everything uh, or hang stuff up. So I'm still looking, can you grade on plus? You can cattle is, is my aim. Like, um, So uh, you, you kind of have to try and get... The, I'm miserable in Aberdonian. I want everything, Mike, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you're, you're still a, a proper tight farmer as well. It's, it's good to see. Um, the... I suppose the other herd we t- we, we've not talked about yet is the is the autumn calvers, and there's quite a lot of exciting things happening in the, in the autumn calving shed as well. So... Um, do you want to just run through what's what's happening with autumn calvers this year? Yeah, um, I, I I like autumn calved cows. I don't know why. I think they fit a lot of systems better than other kind of, than folk might sometimes think in terms of labour use, in terms of building use, all sorts of things. They, they they've got a place that in the right place, at the right time, they definitely work. For us, the autumn calved cows, we've got a lot of hill land. Um, that we can again, we can graze in the summertime, um, again, along with sheep and stuff. Um, but I mean, they're actually quite good in terms of managing kind of grass if it starts to get away from us, because one of the hills in particular is very, very green. Um, so what we've got is autumn calved cows are calving. 
they're, they're coming outside, they're coming in August and September, getting housed with the baby calves in October, they get AI'd uh, over again, in, in that October, November sort of period, um, which is really quite easy when they're inside because you can get access to the cows. It's, it's just a matter of opening some gates and running around to a race as opposed to trying to round them out with their fields and stuff. Well, your autumn calved cow, you're, run, you're probably running a diet at about 120 megs a day anyway. Um, so you can to try and get her in calf. Um, it's quite easy when you then have a little calf going with her to keep him up. He's taking out as much milk from her as possible. And then once she's in calf, can, as, as the program continues, you can drop her back to something, I don't know, 90 or megajoules from thereabouts, and actually put that extra feed into the calf and keep those calves going. So you have quite strong calves to go back out the grass or, or do something else with. What I have done um, is, is a wee bit controversial with these autumn cows in that again, as an industry, we are very au fait with using sex semen in the dairy herd, which is obviously producing heifers uh, to be a cows because nobody wants bull calves. But in the bull in the, in the, the beef se sector, you can really start, so we're looking for bullocks, so we're looking for bulls, we're looking for it's males that we're really looking for. So I set about trying to find sexed male semen, which you can find, but it's one of these things that's very, very expensive, and it's very, very expensive because nobody wants it. But anyway, I eventually sourced um, semen from France, which is a polled um, male-only limousine uh, bull. I could add Anguses and Belgian blues and stuff as well, but I just thought, oh, well, can can slowly, slowly catch a monkey here. So we we, we try we, we we imported, I don't know, 500 straws um, for this particular bull. The cows are carrying these cows, the calves, for the first time. I had expected maybe a slight drop in conception using sex stuff as against conventional semen, as it were. It was six and two threes. What I actually did was I used a conventional Angus bull and a, a sexed Morrison uh, bull. And the same program, some, same cows or similar cows. And I mean, there was no difference in the conception rate. So I think we can knock in the head that the, the, the sex stuff knocks the conception mark. So what I have potentially is three quarters of my cows are carrying male calves and a quarter are carrying females. So these calves, these cows are just coming in for the hell now and they're in bloody good order. So we'll be carving them down towards the end of August. Uh, and we'll wait and see what, what comes out. Now, the next step from that, the logical step to me last year when I was doing this was, well, why are we castrating these calves? So I didn't. And I now have a shed full of bulls for last year's, uh, for last year's home calf cows. Uh, and my intention would be to have those guys going off farm about the same time as their brothers are born. So what you then have as a system on an autumn calved cow that she only carries a bull calf. If she's if she if she comes to that bull calf, you don't castrate them, you don't dehorn them. So the worst thing that will happen to that calf is he gets a tag in his ear. Um, and that 12 months, 13 months later, he's upside down, and uh, his brother's born by that point. If that works, uh, that means you've got a cow that um, in the springtime, March, April time, when you turn them out the shed, she can go into the hill somewhere and be used as a sort of grazing tool for some of the environmental stuff that we have in terms of managing flowers and, uh, and kind of some of the rougher hill grasses and stuff. You just keep that calf in the shed. The sheds are pretty much empty over the summer anyway, so we're actually using sheds that wouldn't normally be used. 
and we're using grain that we are producing on the farm, which is largely supported by um, the, the amount of muck and slurry and stuff that we have. So I, I think we're, we're very efficient, hopefully, um, quick turnaround in terms of the livestock, and hopefully we get. I mean, we are getting the live the, the live gains on these bulls at the moment. I mean, the Ranguses and limousines, they were just conventional. I mean, they're AI calves. They were good cattle to begin with. You can fairly see the difference in genetics in them, as in, again, the good limousines are good, good languages are good, and they have done really, really well. I mean, they're doing, I think, on average, something like, was it 72 kilos in the last 29 days, something like that at the moment, which is the peak of growth, I appreciate. But they are motoring, and they're still on track for, um, you can not be in there when their brother is born, basically. Yeah, it's a phenomenal growth rate, and I do find it really interesting that you know you can have you've got a, there's there's obviously pigs at Easter Howgate as well. We'll not go into too much detail with them today, but it's a very intensive system, but it's constantly intensive. Whereas yeah. the the beef system, you've got the most intensive the most intensive animal in that farm is is your your bull beef uh, animal. And its mother is standing out in a hill somewhere on the most extensive system at the moment. You know, it's a nice... That, that, that's the, the real attraction to this system, if it works. Again, for, again, as we prove the concept and show that this might work, um, that is the real benefit. Because you've got a cow that can be... You can, you, you've can you got her on the hill to manage her body condition. But the good thing of that is that you can actually push her on the hill to actually manage rougher grasses or, or graze bits that you wouldn't really be able to put a more productive cow on in the summertime. Because yep. you, I mean, by the time she's out there, she's safely in calf. And hopefully by being in, kind of on top of a hill somewhere, you get away from flies, so that it's that curse for some of the mistakes and stuff is not as bad as you can you would conventionally have hardware and then buy hot and calf gear. Yep. And these hills you're talking about, George, are, I mean, they're high, they're proper hills. They're, they're, they're oh, well I up. mean, they're, they're, they're they're, they're real hills, like, I mean, they, I don't know idea how high they are. Like, but, I mean, they're quite, I mean, they're, they're not just rolling, they're not just braised, like, they are quite steep, like. like I suppose, um, for reference, they're the, they're the other side of Helene Ski Slope. So, for anybody that's seen Helene yeah, Ski Slope, we've been to the top so, of it. So, yeah, well, it's, it's that, right. If you, if you can imagine Helene Ski Slope in Edinburgh, the, the backside of that Ski Slope hill, plus the next two hills are the hills that we, we farm. The one in the middle is black. Uh, there's just sheep on it. But the, the hill end one... And the next one in are hills that we would traditionally graze with cows. Yeah, and they wouldn't be as as hilly maybe as your your farms at, or your hills at Kirkton, which are oh, the, more, the more extreme end. No, no, that's a mountain. Uh, yeah. It is uh, no. I mean, we still have to get some sort of additional input into these cows. Um, and I mean, the other thing we've been using these cows for is um, you, you can areas. It's areas are just upland grasses beyond the reach or, or the nutrition of a, a spring calving cow or you, you can just start off it's just I suppose it's just every farm's got a gradation of the grass I suppose um, and it's the, probably the highest sensible grass that you've got is what they're on like. mm-hmm. but for us it's it, you can have an environmental grazing, grazing opportunity as well like, which is which is really useful and and that's the bit we need to we, we need to shout that work from the rooftops like, as a whole industry it's more. There's more to beef than just methane. You know, there's there's so much good work that those cows are doing out there, and and that hill would be entirely different if those cows weren't up there. So if that's yeah. if that's the system we have to run, a you know that's it's an economic system that works seems to work well. If that's 
you know, the, the, the secondary benefit there is a butterflies, flowers, you know, habitat as we know it. So, um, I, it is about habitat management, to be fair. And I mean, these cows, because they don't have calves with them as well, they're reasonably docile, placid beasties at that time of year. Um, you can, you're not, you don't have the issues with them that you might have with cows with little calves at foot that can have a can sort of occasionally chase the odd walker and, and disturb wild campers and things. Um, can these cows tend to be, you can, they're, they're in the sort of, you can dry period as it were. Um, so you can, they're quite happy as long as they've got something to eat, like really. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously on the urban fringe, you're just outside Edinburgh. Are walkers and, and public access does that is is that quite a big issue for you? Um, for those those of you who don't know me, I don't have very much hair. Um, I didn't have any hair before I started this job. I think having been doing this job for eighteen months, I think that I would I would not have had any hair by now. Anyway, it is a significant issue for us more than. Unless you've experienced it, it's it is quite a concern for the industry going forward. Just the lack of knowledge of people have of the countryside. Um, I mean, everybody accepts that they've got a right of access, but it's a right of responsible access. And responsible access to me doesn't include taking your Jaguar car and wild camping in a grass field at 1,600 feet. It doesn't include can leaving mess all over the place. It doesn't include letting your dog run wild among my sheep. Um, that is, it is a significant issue for us. I mean, we've had, again, our numbers of dog attacks and stuff are quite significant. Um, and I mean, it's a tiny, tiny minority of people that cause the issue. There is no question about that. The vast majority are absolutely fine, but the ones that do damage do quite a lot of damage. And it's quite disappointing that you can, on a weekend, well, we expect to find gates left open. We expect to find styles thrashed. Um, that is just normal, which is a fairly sad indictment of of where we have them happen to farm, and then fly tipping, which is a different issue, but it's probably as significant for us. Is again, it's of a growing concern. I actually had a set of grass mowers written off completely by some fly tipping this this spring. That was stuff had been dumped in a field of grass that. The time it was cut, there's no way you could see it, and the rebar had been dumped, went through the moors, and absolutely destroyed them. Um, so it's it's unfortunate, but it's what it is. Yeah, it's terrible. We, we have a lot of public access at home, and do you know that the ones that the walkers who make a mistake and leave a gate open, you can kind of you feel like you can maybe educate your way out of that one, or you can you know it's an honest mistake. But when it comes to fly tipping, it really does it grinds my gears anyway. Um, I mean, it's uh, there's, there's no excuses for it. But I mean, it's everywhere, anywhere, anywhere. I mean, even relatively urban, er, rural areas away from the urban sites are still getting bothered by it. Um, and it's it's quite ingenious how some of them dump some of the stuff that they do. To be honest, um, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not going to suggest some of the things I've seen because it might just give folk a few ideas. But a caravan <laughs> full of tires was the, late, the latest I got. Like, so it was great fun. Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, now your problem used to be their problem and now it's yours um, so I suppose moving on from the negative bits of the human race what's 
so obviously the future the future for I think there's a bright future for a livestock production um, but obviously the next wee while there's a bit of a few bumps in the road a potentially obviously climate wise and policy wise where where are you taking so you're you've got a huge all your enterprises across the country what does the future hold where, where are you heading <laughs> I mean, the carbon footprint of my farming operation is significant. There's no question about that. And I mean, it's based largely on ruminant livestock. So therefore, you can have got sheep and cattle and all sorts of things. Adding to this climate change, we've got pigs that use a lot of energy. And obviously, there's a lot of embedded energy within that. One of the things we did last year, I mean, I think the way we're going to cure it as a business, is it's going to be lots of little things as well as some bigger stuff. And the little things are probably things that are more... Uh, palatable for most people. I mean, we stopped feeding soy in the dairies, which I think has been reasonably well written up in some of the dairy press. But essentially, we just stopped using dairy uh, soy in the dairy cows at all. The place that we protected rapeseed meal, we haven't seen any real detriment to the cows, to the milk quality from having done that. Um, obviously, so, you can, it was done with a wee bit of trepidation, but you can. We're not suffering milk-wise for that. I think our milk buyer is quite happy. They're promoting it quite well, quite strongly as well, um, because what you're reducing there is obviously it's not just the carbon associated with the shifting in the soil across the world. This is the whole embedded carbon argument and the kind of pressure on Brazilian rainforests and wherever else the the the, the, um, the soil was coming from. I mean, we're obviously looking at home-produced proteins as well. Again, we've probably increased the areas of, of beans. I think we've about 12 hectares of beans this year. Again, primarily for the dairy cows. Um, we've updated ridges of red clover and stuff again to try and see if we can do something in terms of, of home-produced proteins. And I mean, there'll be a lot of work to do with that going forward. And then, again, there's more fundamental stuff that, We've an embedded carbon we kind of get away from, and not to do research. You need to, can, to do the research we do. We need cows, therefore we're always going to have cows doing. You can create an, a carbon footprint, and so it's about again making sure that, that, that we keep on track with this. Again, uh, the government policy in terms of how the researchers are attracting the money into the business, so that. Are we kind of approaching as an industry? Are we sending messages that can we feed something out there? Because I mean, at the moment, nobody's found the magic, again, the golden bullet, silver bullet, whatever it is. Um, but it may, it may exist. But equally, there are plenty of uh, snake oil salesmen out there telling us that we could feed this, feed that, feed the next thing. We should drop that word, actually. Um, uh, there are plenty of folk with hypotheses that need to be tested. Um, and that's in the position we're in. We need to test do these things actually work or, or can they be part of a solution to reduce the amount of carbon that the cows are producing. I mean, what we, can't, what we shouldn't forget is that for a given amount of feed, we all know that a particular bull's progeny will be better than, a set, than another bull's progeny in terms of straight life, can live weight gain. What we don't know and what we do need to test is, is and, and that's what the microbiome is about, is that for a set a given amount of food going into a rumen system, does that produce the same amount of beef for less carbon or not? And that's what the whole microbiome thing 
essentially is about. And you could end up with cattle or specific or sheep that are specifically line bred to produce less carbon and still but still be a sheep. And there's a, a lot of there's a lot of interesting work done by the stabilizer guys that are, you know, quite well down that road of um, emissions and and a you know environmental footprint and you know, there's it's some pretty positive results coming there too, which is quite quite exciting to see. No, it's, it's really exciting stuff. I mean, we can see it's a big threat, but it's only a threat when we're not doing anything about it. But you can, I think, as an industry, we have to be aware that the silver bullet may not come and it could be a lot of little stuff that adds up to quite a big thing eventually. So things like, I'm about to invest, whether good or bad, I'm about to invest in a slurry analyzer to go into the umbilical system. We've got various umbilical systems to use supplying the slurries. What I have bought is a, I'm waiting to come home as a, an onboard um, spectrometer, which gives me real-time data for getting dry matter of the slurry going on, but also the NP and K as well. So we can actually tailor the applications to exactly what the crops are looking for. And we then know what we've applied. So therefore, you can, event, you can it will lead through to using less fertilizers or use fertilizers more appropriately as well. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's things like that. It's things like do we invest in biogas plants and biodigesters and things? Is that a place? What's the scale and all that? Does that come to us? Because although I'm a big business, it's on seven sites. And I mean, some of these sites are 300 miles apart. So it's not like I had one big 4,000 hectare farm in the middle of Texas or wherever that you could actually do a lot of this stuff collectively. There is a lot of logistics involved between, the, between them. Like. Yeah, it's um, hi. It's exciting times, and and it's great to see you know SRUC farms and in, in good hands, and certainly you and a, a passionate team round about that are you know really keen to kick on and 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 you know make a difference and and you know try things because as you say, George, the, the marginal gains most of life the the, the best op- opportunities for progress are in, in marginal gains and the small things certainly and on on a farm level the small stuff. It's generally the stuff that we can save quite a bit of money as well. So um, it is, and I suppose I'm really, really lucky. I've got a team of guys that can folk on the ground um, who are on the younger side than 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 than, than you might expect. So therefore, their engagement in technologies is fantastic, and you can you can actually start investing in technologies that they will engage with. That they don't refuse to, to. I wouldn't say that the older guys are refusing to do stuff, but I mean they see the merit in doing it. And it, to them, I mean, I have an, an eighteen-month-old grandson who can work a smartphone already. I mean, I left the university and internet didn't exist. I mean, and I'm, you know, it's can, the step, the steps in technology, the, 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 the applications of these technologies to all industries, especially farming, makes us a really, really exciting industry to be in going forward. Because what these young guys, folk coming into this our business are going to be doing in their careers 10, 20, 30 years later, whether they stick with us or whether they move on, it's stuff that we can't even contemplate now. But I mean, could you contemplate it before? I mean, I bought a fertilizer spreader the other day, and I think I might just about manage to use the teleporter to put the fertilizer into the spreader. I, I don't believe I could start the tractor, and I don't believe I could actually operate the fertilizer spreader properly. But the guys on it can. So if, <laughs> it shows you where we're going with these things. Yeah, so what you're saying there is that the thing's the, so precise with the right operator on it, but if we put you on it, it's, uh, it's less than precision farming. That would be a very big mistake. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. allow me to near any of these bits of kit now, to be honest. Yes, um, everyone has their strengths. <laughs> uh, but what I would suggest, though, is that again, as an industry, it's quite an it is a very attractive prospect, agriculture, right now and going forward. Um, we've got big challenges, but the technologies and stuff are out there to, to make us quite an exciting place to be. Yeah. Brilliant. George, that's been really, really interesting uh, discussing that with you. Um, conscious of your time, you've got plenty happening, uh, lots happening with good weather as well. So I'll uh, leave it at that. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing you from you in future podcasts. So thank you very much. No worries. Cheers. Thanks, Robert. Perfect.